Boy, oh boy, am I excited this morning to have Joseph Slomka sitting across from me, a principal color scientist at Photochem. Hi, Joseph. Good morning. Good day. Good morning. Thanks for having me over. I'm doing great. Yeah, I'm excited to have you. Thanks so much for making the time. Yeah, no, it's great when people want to know about what I'm doing. Yeah, you've got, that's exactly what I want to know is what you're doing because you play such a critical role in motion image mastering. But what exactly you do, uh, even among those of us who are like into this stuff, colorists and motion imaging professionals, it's not like we don't know exactly what it is that you do. So tell us like a little bit about in your role at Photochem, what's what, what are the main sort of buckets of work that you do to support all these movies that you work on? So the two main buckets I do are making sure that everything meets the different technical standards for all of our different deliverable formats. Each studio will have an ever so slightly different version of what they mean by things. So I just make sure that everything that we do fits within those particular buckets and our deliveries pass that technical muster in terms of the color response. Then as well, I try to make custom tools to everyone gets the same amount of time. I try to make tools that get more done in the amount of time that we have. Cool. So you're on one hand, like supporting technical necessities. And then on the other hand, you're really facilitating creativity. Yeah. Interesting. And on that technical side, is that just like color spaces and things like that? When you say the deliverable specs, tell me more about that first bucket. Yeah, it could be, it could be color specs where, where someone deliver a specific spec and they're like, oh, it has to do, it has to fit within a container. And then I just try to make sure that everything that we do can be fit within the container. Or sometimes as people have wanted to push new technologies, they're like, it has to definitely use the features of this thing. So it's got to go beyond a certain brightness level. It's got to go beyond a certain amount of color. And then you meet with the filmmakers and they're like, yeah, I don't, it's not what I want. So I'm like, all right, we'll figure out a way to make this technically hit the targets while still giving you the imagery that you're looking for. And is that, it sounds like a lot of that would come down to designing custom pipelines for things so that you're getting, you're giving like artists and colorists, like the ability to operate within something that's going to produce that result, like designing a system. Yeah. So I just, yeah. One of the other things I'll do is I'll design the whole pipeline. So understanding where the deliveries need to be and then understanding how the colorist needs to work understanding, usually meeting with the DP, understanding what their concerns are, working any kind of look development that they want into it, and then creating a pipeline that makes sure that they know what they're getting on set. They have the adequate tools to visualize how it's going to end up on set color tools for digital imaging technicians. And then as well, making sure that we have tools for near set color. So we'll have dailies color with all the clips will come in. And then working with visual effects houses to make sure that the pipelines can all be properly transferred and the delivery, the color portion of the delivery specs meet what they need in order to do their effects and then understand that what we're getting, we're seeing the same thing they're seeing. So it's a lot of checks and balances, understanding the whole system from end to end, figure out where you're going to end up, figure out where you started, and then make sure each piece along the way works. It's a lot of dotting the I's, crossing the T's kind of stuff just to make sure each individual piece is tested and vetted and does what it's supposed to so that when it hits production, it it's ready to go. It works. Yeah. It sounds like you're really doing something else so critical, which is you're providing proper context to everyone, whether that's on set or visual effects artists or anywhere upstream of uh, color. And then of course, in color itself, like you're giving like visual context for everyone so that everyone's moving toward the same visual goal. Yeah. So I I think that's a really important, I used to emphasize that a bit more, but the idea is that everyone understanding what they're seeing and why they're seeing it allows each artist to be collaborative in the motion picture environment. Mm -hmm. 
because if someone goes, oh, you're not seeing it, of course your monitor is too green or it's too red or you're seeing things too bright or too dark, then you begin to discount comments from those people. And then you want everyone in a movie to be a check. So even though you all editorial doesn't need color, sometimes they do because if they see something that looks off, maybe it passed through everyone else and you want editorial to raise their hand and say, hey, this doesn't look right. Yeah. So the idea is even people who you don't think should have an important part in the color process deserve a chance to see things properly so that they can participate and help do their part to make the movie better. And you can vouch that making that dream come true of giving everybody that proper like lens into the final image, that's a job. That doesn't just happen, does it? Yeah, no, it's, it has to be very deliberate. It's, in fact, it's, it's actually quite challenging to set that up especially with all the different software and tools and understanding what's appropriate. So holding, for instance, onset delivery to the same kind of level of scrutiny that we would hold the visual effects deliveries to is inappropriate. It would take too long, cost too much money, and people wouldn't get things done on time. So it's about understanding each process and then adequately describing it in a way that each stakeholder in the film can participate Cool. And what I think is so interesting is like you're in already a very small group of people who do what you do, like color scientists to the stars, I'll call it, because you're supporting really high level filmmaking in some of the like biggest films in the world. And there's a few color scientists in our industry who fall into that category. But you're in an even smaller group because you work at a facility that's also the only remaining motion picture laboratory at least one of the only remaining ones in the world, right? Yeah, there's not many in the world. There's still 35 and there's a lot more 16, but in terms of large format, in terms of large format release printing, I think we're the only the only place that can make release prints yeah. at that 70 mil format. And I just think it's interesting too that you're not siloed just in the photochemical or just in the digital side of that business. That's what makes you a unicorn of a color scientist is that you are actively involved in motion imaging on the digital and on the photochemical side and looking at the relationship between those things, even within a single project, right? Yeah. Wow. That's, do you like your job? It seems like yeah, a cool it's job. Cool. <laughs> it's, it's interesting that you mentioned the big projects because I get to work on all sides of projects. What I find is the biggest filmmakers are the most passionate about the projects as well as the smallest. Uh, luckily I'm salary, so it doesn't, I can devote my time as it's needed. So I'll sit down and work with film students and they really care and really put a lot of passion and effort into getting their work done just as well as the big ones do. Mm -hmm. So it's nice to be able to just help people and not have to worry about, oh, this guy's important or this guy's not. Like, I don't know who's important. And there's a few people where you're just like, oh yeah, this is a big deal. But for the most part, you just work with people and help them get their vision on the screen. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. How does it look for you when you look at the kind of the landscape of the way images are being made right now? I guess the, what I'm wondering is what do you see as like the biggest challenges or barriers to people getting the image that they want realized in the end, whether they're shooting digitally or shooting on film, what are some of the biggest challenges that you are helping people navigate if they want to get a film look or they want to get any look for that matter? Like what needs to happen in order for that to work? A clear vision of what it's supposed to look like before they turn on the camera. Mm -hmm. That is the biggest challenge, is helping people focus in on what they mean when they say a film look. Because mm -hmm. right? when you say that, it can mean so many different things to so many people, but it's almost become a default. We're like, I don't want an 80s soap opera look, so I want a film look. 
And that seems to be like the two choices. They're like, I don't want it to look like video. I want it to look like film. And what that means to different creative people and what it means to different projects can be a very different um, type of be a very different type of look. So sometimes it's about working with people and they'll come in with some test footage or some ideas and helping hone in on where they're trying to go and then creating tools that let them get there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I think it's interesting. Like you've worked very closely with one of my heroes in this business, Steve Yedlin, who I think is a great example of someone who has really gotten granular with the film look, quote unquote, and it's saying, here are some attributes, some characteristics of a traditional film system that I find desirable and how am I going to extract and realize those? And so it sounds like that's part of the role that you play as well is figuring out, okay, not how do you do a one-to-one emulation of exactly what this film system would have gotten, but how do you get what the filmmaker is actually being turned on by, what they actually want in their project. Yeah. And that's why it's worked um, great to work with people like Steve because he's got a very specific goal in mind. So the idea is that there's um, creative control over what the image looks like, not just, okay, film does this, so I want it to look like that. Right. When With someone like Steve, he's very specific. I want this aspect for this particular feature. He's been working on his um, tools and emulations and every film they change. And it's not because films changed, it's because the projects changed and the business changed and the specific things that he wants to get out of a project are going to be different depending on what he's doing. Is that just like specific aesthetic things when it's, I want the reds at this density, like that kind of, when he says, I want this thing specifically, is is that a good example of the he can, yes. type of details? So there, they'll, for any particular film, there'll, there'll be hero things that are paid attention to more than others. So then the idea is to be able to deliver on that. But yeah, mm-hmm. what's really great about working with Steve is that he has a lot of technical language mm-hmm. to describe what his artistry is. And he's able to, even at the level of being able to hand over algorithms and be like, this is what I want my grain to look like. And it's, he'll have the photographic example, and then he'll have the digital example as well. Mm-hmm. And then it's up to the, the programming team at Photochem to implement it. And at that level, I just make sure we don't mess it up. Like he hands it and he's, here's exactly what it's supposed to be. And it's okay. Time to dot all those I's, cross all those T's, make sure everyone along the way is doing the steps right. So then he gets to concentrate on shooting the film. And then I work with random title house vendor that maybe isn't on board or random visual effects vendor that's brought in six weeks after start. Right. So they handle those details after they hand off the look. But not everyone has that level of specificity. So they don't necessarily know, they, they understand what's there and what's possible. So then it's good to work through the technical details and help them really narrow in on that process and get what they're looking for. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And one of the things that comes to mind for me, like I can remember years ago, starting to feel a little constrained by, okay, I've got my emulation LUT or whatever that I love that I grade under. And at a certain point, it doesn't matter how good the emulation LUT is. You grade 50 projects under it and you start to get specific needs or wants for particular projects come up or you start to go, yeah, but what if the shoulder wasn't as flat in the top? Or what if I could get a little more pure greens or whatever you're looking for? And I can remember that was really the itch that made me want to get a little more literate in color science of like, how would I do that? Because I can't go into that LUT. I can't easily go in and manipulate that 3D LUT directly. So I guess my question is, if we start thinking about like, all right, we want to be able to more granularly manipulate and borrow characteristics from a film system, 
Can you tell me about like some of the nitty gritty, like what are the tools or the vehicles that you use to realize that? Like, how do you do that for people? For the most part, I use a tool like I, I would use, how do I do that for specific people? Like I said, it's trying to figure out and hone in and listen to what they're talking about and then try to convert those words into the, the imagery. From there, because I've been doing this for a while, everything's mature. So I think about bits and pieces that they're saying and be like, oh, that's like this particular project this that I've done. So I can take those little bits and pieces and then combine them together into a way that sort of gets what they're looking for. A tool that I use a lot for my um, color creation is Nuke. So it's a visual effects compositing tool. And one of the things you do for visual effects compositing, it's a basically a color computer or an imaging computer, and you can make it do anything you want, but you can break it out into nodes so that you can see each step along the way, run them parallel, run them separate. So you can have an image pipeline that does everything exactly the same way to a certain point and then fork it off and then see two different results instantaneously. Mm -hmm. So it gives you a lot of live feedback as to what you're doing. And as well, it lets you do any level of technical manipulation that you want. So you can go all the way from nuke scripting to TCL scripting to having simple nodes that behave very similar to the way the nodes in Resolve do, but you get it with much more precision and much more repeatability. So yeah. the idea is you're like, so for a lot of these look changes that I do for particular films, you know, we'll have a film emulation or we'll have a digital to film emulation. We don't change them a lot. Like when someone's looking for something, they go, you know what? I wanted to start with this. And the difference between one person's work and another might be just a few percent mm -hmm. where it's to most people, they would just look at it and go, oh yeah, they're the same. And then when the, you really go in and you look at the particular photography and how it was lit, combining with that particular light, you're like, oh yeah, that 3% difference in the midtones or the shadows or the highlights really it made it from, this is good to, yeah, it couldn't have been any other way. Yeah. And that's really what I look for when working with colorists is when they're done, you're just like, yeah, that's what the image looks like. Of course. It just is the image. Yeah. Like you don't think it's been graded. You just know that, yeah, that's the way it looks and that's just it. I feel like that's one of the big gifts of working photochemically. That's maybe the hardest thing to replicate digitally is when you're working with exposed neg processed being printed onto a good stock and all that stuff. There is that sense of inevitability to it. It's this is the image. It was never going to be any other image. Maybe you timed a little, a little bit to taste in that portion of the process, but it's not, Oh, it could have been half that contrast or there could have not been like that, like, color bias in the shadows like it just is what it is and it's a little harder with digital because it's it's so cool because we're in control of all of it but it's harder to get to the point you're describing i think of this is inevitable this is what it this is the right and the only right treatment for these images yeah it's i try to design tools that like colorists get there quicker because it's all the work of the colorists that do it but it's interesting that you say oh film just is it is what it is there's so much skill that goes into the color timing of photochemical negative to make prints that people who work digitally will be unaccustomed to how radically something can shift and still be almost correct. Mm -hmm. So you could look at uh, a particular print and if the timing lights are off, it just looks very wrong. wrong. So when you see an image on a screen and you're like, oh yeah, that film just looks right. It's most likely someone has done some color timing to it because film is very sensitive to movements. So you can go like, it's just a, being just a little bit off can make the image look just entirely wrong. Yeah. And it's just really that the people doing it now have been doing it for decades and they're incredibly skilled and the work 
their work just comes out right. And that can be like in a shot or in a scene, like it can be on small or large scale that you have to move things into that balanced position. Yeah. So it's, there's a, there's really a lot of skill in the photochemical timing that makes that look. So there was a lot of effort. So it, it turns out people think, oh, film, that's just what it looks like. But you think of it, there were color science, hundreds of color scientists over decades and decades refining the particular chemical processes to make film look like that. Film right. doesn't look like that on its own. They figured out working with artists and working with filmmakers over, over the various decades to make that look. So when you go, wow, that's a great look, it's had a lot of refinements. It's been yeah. on literally, it could have literally been on millions of shows. Yeah. Thanks. It only took me a century to build it. <laughs> yeah. So that's why I think it's a really great. It's a good starting place because so much of film history is built up in that visual language. And it's not just that the art adapted to the technical process. The technical process was designed to facilitate the art. Right. There's just really so much amazing effort that went into film over decades. I love that, like with film too, I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I love that unlike any other flavor of motion imaging I can think of, there was never any notion of, yeah, but it just needs to be technically right and the art will come later. That was always part of the dialogue of not just how do we accurately or correctly render the images, but how do we artfully? It just seems like that was always part of the design intent of every new iteration of film stock or film technologies. Like, how do we make beautiful, not just correct images? They designed the system so that beautiful and correct was the same thing. Right. So it's, it wasn't an accident when you technically, you're like, oh yeah, when I properly expose and get all these things and you hit even just default lights, it looks good because it was designed with artists working yeah. with the chemists and feedback from the motion picture industry to make the film do those things. So it's really not an accident. And some people think it is. So when they see people taking all this effort to build film emulation lots and these different kinds of film mapping, it's a really great place to start because so much work has been thought out and put into the visual response of the system to make it behave the way that we feel film is. We still call it film, even though people probably haven't seen film and like an actual film print that's been photochemically made in quite some time. It's funny. I can remember when theaters started switching over to digital. I remember, and in those early days, like digital projection wasn't, I, you would, it was, you were better off seeing the print in general. And I can remember being in the theater and catching that I had just watched a digital projection and going to the counter outraged and like, give me my money back. I paid to see a film print. Damn it. And it's like, now, of course, like in general, you, I, I would rather see a good digital projection. It's going to be more stable and it's not going to have been like run through the projector so many times. But like in those early days, I remember like the print was the thing, the actual film print. Yeah. There's, it's not too often you get that, but seeing the early run of a film print, early run film prints for things that are designed to have a film look are the best way to see something. Mm -hmm. There's, there's a lot of work that's done in digital. So if you can't see it, soon on, like you said, if a print's been run through a hundred times, it's going to be better to see the digital. But if you really get a chance to see a good quality film print that's been handled well, and actually that has a lot to do with it. Funny enough, from what I've been hearing, the print stock's been getting more durable. I don't know if Kodak's been doing something or the people who treated prints poorly just don't work in the industry anymore. <laughs> but I've been hearing from people, they're like, hey, these prints are lasting longer than they used to at a higher quality. Uh, you just don't see film prints with gouges and scratches and hair all over them anymore. Yeah. The bar has been raised maybe a little bit 
I would say at the, right now, because there's not many people doing release printing, that when you see a film print, it's almost, they're almost bespoke at this point. Mm -hmm. So I know that, for instance, like when we did Hateful Eight, there was a lot of effort spent to make sure that all of the individual reels were matched together. There was only a couple hundred release prints versus what it used to be thousands upon Tens thousands. Of Basically, every theater needed at least one print. If they were showing it twice, they would need at least two. So you think of right. all the theaters in the world. So now having a couple hundred prints is considered a large release, but that's still small enough that when you're doing the QC and you're watching it, you can note the timing and make sure that everything's matched up. I would say that probably prints now are the best they've been. In terms of a regular person going to a theater and seeing a print, it is going to be of higher quality than what you would have seen 20, 30 years ago. That makes perfect sense, but I hadn't thought about that at all. They're actually better than they've ever been in the narrow like window that we get them now. And I think it's interesting too, because you have been directly involved in those movies that run the limited release prints that I'm like, I'm there. I got it. Like I've got my tickets for Oppenheimer to go see that. I was there. I probably helped wear out that 70 mil print of Hateful Eight in Austin, Texas, where I was at the time. I must've seen that at the Alamo Draft House half a dozen times because it was just like such a singular, like confined window. You can go in there and see it while it's running for this week or you won't get that chance again. So it's, you've been involved in, directly involved in so many like event films like that premiere, like, cool, clear the calendar. But those two that you mentioned are made different. So okay. typically a lot of digital tools are used. So even if something goes out in film, they'll shoot film, they'll scan it all, right. they'll do a digital color correction and then they'll and film out. and then they'll do a digital film out. Mm -hmm. The two films you described were somewhat of a specialty that we do at Photochem. And the fact that most of the film was finished analog. So for instance, in the parts of Hateful Eight where there weren't visual effects, everything was a cut and egg put onto a timed IP. Timed. The color timing was done analog. And then from that intermediate element, the chain was made to make those release prints. So there was no digital intermediate. In fact, there's a couple scenes where there were blue screens that were very tiny sections of the screen. And I recall seeing the print and in the digital version, they put in the green screen, but they didn't turn those into digital shots just for like a two or three inch little section of window that was off in the back corner. So they actually kept they doing more of the film as purest thing. So it's one of the few chances that people have to actually watch the film process. Because film is, there's a lot that you gain by shooting on film, but printing on film imparts the distinct look. So film is a system where the print and where the negative and the prints go together. So I would say specifically Oppenheimer was done in uh, very much the same way where anything that was analog, it's cut and it's photochemically timed and treated photochemically the way films haven't been done in a very long time. Mm -hmm. So it really, when you go to see a film print, it is the film look. It's exactly what it is. The prints have been timed. And because we run, like I said, because there's so few of them compared to what there used to be, they're, they're very high quality. Yeah. You can really like eagle eye those limited prints. And as you said, that's the, you're getting the full end to end system of the negative. And that leads me to a question I've been dying to ask you. So there's, I feel like so much appetite among people I work with or people I, I just hear talking about emulation and look development in the motion imaging world who are very keen just on the negative side of things. Like, oh, I just want to get a negative characterization. And obviously this is something you guys are 
uh, heavily involved with the photochem through the analog intermediate process. What do you think, just on an aesthetic wavelength, what is the, the visual value prop of negative only emulation as opposed to what we would t- typically think of as the full system of taking a negative or shooting negative and marrying it to a print to get that full image? There's a lot of value in that, so but it all depends on what you want for your ultimate end product. So one of the things is that if you're shooting negative, you have the way that film captures light. So the idea is that it fundamentally captures light and treats the captured light in a specific way. But you may not want the limitations of a film print. So the idea is you can acquire on film and then master it and get colors that you could never have achieved on a film print. So anything like, for instance, Oppenheimer, they've limited themselves to what's possible on film. They haven't created colors that weren't possible on film for a particular effect. They said, this is what that image looks like. But for a different work, it may be completely appropriate. You say, hey, you know what? I want a super bright, saturated red, which is not something that film Can't does. Can't get with film. So you may want some of the specific characteristics, specifically how film acquires skin tones, and it kind of compresses that vector. So you don't wind up with like splotchy faces because the way the sensitivity works on film, it's been, it's very forgiving to skin and that a lot of different reds and that particular vector crush in on each other. So you, you know, it's just far more forgiving. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's a lot of use for film acquisition and then how the end product is designed to be displayed and what you're looking for does the end process. I've actually seen, I think you alluded to this process that we do shift where it's almost the opposite, where we're taking a digital look and then putting it on film to do for the characteristics that film does and then bringing it back to the digital color. So in, in that case, people want some very specific characteristics of spatial aspects of film as opposed to the color aspects of film. Interesting. So that, that is that what you say would say is like one of the key value props there with something like shift is it's really about like textural spatial characteristics more so than like color metric? There's two different versions of shift. So the ones I did for the Batman and for Dune, Mm -hmm. they were specifically for the textural characteristics. So for instance, Dune, obviously you can do again, go very large format film, Lawrence of Arabia type of look to it. It doesn't, it's not a heavy intense look, but the film added some of those spatial characteristics to it. Like a, almost like a five perf print. The Batman was very film noir. So the idea was developed this really gritty, dense grain patterns and the specific responses around the, basically the grain and the gate weave and those things to help push the imagery where they wanted. Interesting. It was, yeah, that one was a lot of work. But in the end, you had to, you looked at it and you're like, yeah, this really, they were right. Like all the extra work, it really added something to the imagery that was purposefully good. It is, it, it, I'm excited to hear about the, the work, but you're so right. Like the end result, the combination, you support some of the best colorists in our business, of course, David Cole and the other members of the team there and Greg's vision and Matt's vision for the Batman specifically like that end product is so particular. And it's a great example of what we were talking about a couple minutes ago. That's a specific vision. That's a specific aesthetic that is realized so well for that film, but I'm dying to know what are the what was the lot of work? What was the most laborious aspect of developing that? Uh, they asked for something that wasn't possible. <laughs> and then I go, it's great. So I put together a demo and I go, this is good. I'll never have to do this again. And I showed it to them and whatever it was, they saw something in it that they liked. The initial version of the process I showed them, because one of the things they were looking for was specifically bleach bypass. We're doing intermediate elements. 
and the specific way that things were being asked to be done, you weren't going to get things like, so there's a scene at the end of the film where the Batman has a road flare and it's bright and it's red and he's in a dark room. And if you, we did a actual photochemical bleach bypass of it, it should have been a black room with a white streak. And that on, on the default bleach bypass, that's what it would look like. So the idea was to be able to use that photochemical process in the way that we were requested to, but still make all of the digital colors come back with the smoothness and gradation. For instance, when you look at the faces, the faces, all of the skin tone is smooth. And that that didn't just happen. That took, honestly, it took years to get that process for that specific request to work that way. But we learned so much about the film process and it really drove us. We, we wouldn't have been able to do it without being integrated with the lab. So we had to work. We were literally sitting in rooms going, okay, so here's the results we're getting. Obviously, this is great, but we need to be better in order to achieve these specific aspects are still lacking. So it's about working with the um, scanning and recording departments to understand tolerances and what they're doing and what their process is. And then it's about working with the very specific, the laboratory people. And then there was my end on working on the digital. And then there was getting to work with Dave Cole and Phil Beckner in terms of getting those combinations together and getting them to the quality. So there's always errors, right? There's always stuff that's different, but filmmaking is pass fail. When if you do everything a director wants, you've passed. If you do 99.9% of what they want, it's a fail. Right. If you do 120%, they don't even notice. Right. Right. It's like you hit the vision or you don't. So it's really about focusing on the things that are important to that particular filmmaker for that particular piece and achieving it. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to worry about the rest of the stuff. So in that sense, I work on the technical end and I'm like, here's all of the stuff that's wrong. And then the people who are working with the artists have a general idea of what's important to them on any particular scene or particular object and going, it's good, but guess what? This, the way that it goes into shadow, we're, we're picking up too much grain on the, the shadow side of faces. So that's something that needs to be addressed. And it's okay. And you can even see that in the different trailers as the age progresses. You can actually watch the process progress from the first to the last trailer of the Batman. No way. Yeah. So I can go do a, a get a history lesson in the iterations on that process by looking at the trailers yeah where they all look good and they all look similar mm -hmm. but there's a much more subtlety as they go along and then as we hit the last trailers and we hit the feature film we really got the process in the place where it was just right for that film wow and so in that case ultimately the intent was to have a sort of a black box that you could push image out to and get back that same image texturally modified but fundamentally similar in terms of color identical right? in color so the, the whole process was new and it was not necessarily proven and there's costs associated with it so we designed the process in a way that you could do everything digitally and you have the di and all of the colors are color mm -hmm. so there wasn't time in the schedule or budget to do another whole color pass after that element was output it just had to match right so the idea was we made it and we did a test a fairly exhaustive test of the film material and then we put it up and then we could show them here's the digital version of this process. And then here's the film version run through the photochemical process and then let the director and cinematographer view it and then show it eventually to the, um, to the people at the studio that they felt needed to be included in that decision Right. and then show it to them. But at any point we could have just said, you know what? Something happened. Film went bad. This didn't work. We can only go right back to the digital the version. Digital model. So that way a film can't fail, right? right? You just can't 
put a film in a position where you're like, oh, okay, we messed it up and it's, we, sorry, we just can't make it. Yeah. So the idea was to have this process in a way that no matter what, we were going to deliver and deliver on time. Mm-hmm. And in order to deliver on the schedule we needed to, there couldn't be another full color pass. Yeah, an additional pass. So there was an additional trim where we, we got the colors to match, but that's also a point where the creatives can now see the process in reality and then make some subtly different decisions than they were making before. Right. Wow. That is so interesting. So you ended up, aside from all the other challenges you had to navigate, I'm sure, with like actually exposing that negative and, as you were saying, tolerances in the laboratory, scanning methodology and like all that stuff. It required expertise from all of the people involved in order to make that work. It, w- it wouldn't insane. work without it. It required, literally, I did as much as I could digitally, and then I had to go to the people running the lab, and then I had to go to the people doing the scanning. We all had to work together to make that as smooth a result as it was. I just think it's fascinating that like, maybe it's because of of where my brain goes and my comfort with things inside of a box as opposed to in a lab. But once you get back that, okay, we've exposed these images onto negative and we've scanned them to good tolerance and all that stuff. Now you've got to manage that material somehow to slot it back into your pipeline. Did you have to, are we talking about a three by three matrix here? Get geeky with me. What are you doing to map that scans neg back into something known so that you can push it out without too much change in the image. Honestly, we designed the process that it comes back almost right to begin with. Wow. So the idea is that we don't, we just don't have time. So the whole point is to make it so that any corrections that we're having to do are real based. Mm-hmm. So it's not like we're going in shot to shot or scene to scene. It's like a point green in real two or whatever type of thing. Yeah. I found that the, but there's also some nonlinearities in the film as well. Right. So in individual scenes, if the colorist felt that it wasn't gaining, so for instance, flicker being introduced from the process, if they felt that wasn't useful, then they would deflicker part of that scene or something to that effect. If it was distracting overall, we'd w- change the process to reduce, figure out, do we need to run things slower? Do we need to run things faster, brighter, dimmer? All of those different changes to the way that the film's physically processed to change those behaviors. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of threads going yeah. on with that. But so for in order for the matching and to get it at the end, in general, most of the correction could be taken care of by tonal curves. Mm-hmm. So where we run some test patches and we just simply say the shadows are coming in green because of some process variation from this batch to the next batch to get them within. And then we'd use some some basic they're not machine learning, but there's image matching algorithms that you can use. Mm-hmm. And we take samples from various representative points of the film. And then we just create a solved solution that addresses some particular scenes that creates sort of a 3D or yeah, a 3D LUT that would go on top of the tone match on top of everything as close as possible that would help pick up all of the small nuances and variations that we needed to. Got it. And so at the end of that, you've essentially got a uh, pretty good match to the original colors in the original like camera metric or grading metric that you were using initially. We're usually trying within two code values in 10 bit space or less than one code value in eight bit space. Wow. There's going to be grain and other things that um, throw that into uh, relief, but for, for those particular projects, it has to be the color they chose. Yeah. And this is, I I knew this was going to happen. I feel like we could just do the next two hours talking about 
this process, but I've got so many other things I want to ask you about. But before we move on from this, I did want to ask something I don't really know anything about, like the effective gamut and dynamic range of negative. Did you run into any instances where you're like, oh, we've actually colors that we graded and we that were being reproduced in a certain way, they're differing not because our system is wrong, but because we've hit the edge of the gamut of the neg. Or does it? did it feel like the neg had robust enough gamut and dynamic range to contain the color grading decision? Are you talking about made? the shift process or just different? Or? Yeah, like on the Batman, for example, were there any colors that by the time they passed through that system? No, that's, I made my life easier in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. The film gamut wasn't a limiting factor. Interesting. More of the time I was worried about noise. Interesting. So I had to put the images on the film in a way that particular hero things didn't pick up too much noise. It's a really dark film or it's a, and then it's on film, but it couldn't look and it needed to have that beautiful, chunky kind of silver halide bleach bypass grade, but it couldn't look chunky. Yeah. So there was a lot of noise mitigation and things that were done to make sure that we were using the film in the places where film had the best characteristics and then avoiding the places where it didn't. Well, I feel like that in and of itself is a testament to what you mentioned a couple minutes ago, that if you were to go with the full film emulation end to end, you would almost certainly run into instances where dynamic range or color gamut are being managed or constrained in a way that maybe you don't want. Whereas it seems like with the neg, I'm just, it's, I love talking about this and listening to it because it's so interesting to think about these as discrete pieces and be like, the neg It's more about you were leveraging it more for the textural pieces, but you're not really seeing the same hard limits that you do get when you print something like colors go a particular way. Like your like shoulder of your dynamic range has a ceiling to it that is specific and it might not be what you want creatively. So it sounds like a different animal with just doing the negative side of things. There's you're combining a few different things. So there's shooting a negative and then there's, taking negative and making a print. And there's the shift process. The right. shift process is off to the side because I can do things that don't make sense for a re- photochemical film print. Uh-huh. Even if I'm using film print in the process, I can do things like say, I'm just not going to go above a particular density. And I can change the recorder in a way where I simply go, okay, we just don't hit a particular density because it doesn't work well for this pr- process. Got it. So there's a lot of, okay, shoot it out and try and be like, oh, okay. We need to change it. At this point, we've gotten so much experience with the process. We don't need to do those things anymore. But in the beginning, there was a lot of like, why doesn't this work? Now, when you're shooting with film and then printing with film, when you shoot on neg, you, you get a lot of those filmic acquisition processes. But then you have, especially because most of the time we're using a digital film emulation anyway. So it depends how close you want it to um, jive to the film emulation and what's the purpose. So a lot of this goes back to, well, what is it for? Why are we delivering it? Are there technical limitations? So typically you don't pick something with a film white that goes to television. So if it's going to be episodic or streamed, you start with a video white and then let the colorist time in the warmth that they want to. So by default, if you just desatted the whole image, it goes black to pure video, black to pure video white. And then they can, if they want, they can turn the blue down to increase the warmth and they can put that in themselves because of technical requirements for fade up, fade down, cut into commercials, cut into trailers. Those can be things that they want to do, but they still want all of the other characteristics of film. They want the way skin tones react. They want all of these things, but they go, look, I just want to desat it and boom it, you know, fade up, fade down. 
where I need to be. Whereas something going to a Blu-ray that's going to be a self-contained piece, you might say, you know, we're going to pick film white. We're right. just that's it. You know, we mastered film. We'll set up the projector and we'll say, just run a film print and then run the projector, and you go, they match. The 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 whatever the white of the projector is exactly the same white on the film that we're seeing on the digital, and they all go together and they, you know, look the same. But you need to know what it's for and why you're doing it as to what tools you provide. Because providing those LUTs that have a film warm white, and then the person's working on something that's going to go to video, they're going to be constantly fighting against the look of the lookup table to produce a technically... To produce D65. Just to produce a normal looking image, like right off the bat. And that's obviously not a good use of their time. That's the opposite of what you do, which is making things more efficient and more creatively advantageous. Wow. That's so cool. This really leads me to the, uh, one of the other things I was really excited to ask you about, which is the way you develop, not only we've talked about pipelines and processes for specific projects and a lot of the way that filmmakers drive that conversation of, Hey, we want this texture for the Batman or for whatever the project is. What about in-house? We've mentioned before, you work with some amazing colorists at Photochem. And I know I've heard you talk before about developing custom tools for the artists that are just like, Hey, I just want to have this in my toolkit as an artist. Can you tell me a little bit about that part of your job? So what it usually comes down to is they'll work on a job and they'll say, hey, you know what? I'm having too much trouble getting this. They're like, I, like our colors, they can get anything from anywhere. And any technical colors is going to do that. But how long it takes them and how difficult it is for them is really the task. Because they're not just about getting the image. They're about getting it efficiently and quickly so they can finish a whole film and the time that you know these people have to devote to it. So the idea is they'll usually say, hey, I'm having trouble doing this, or I'm having trouble doing that, or it took me longer than I would have liked to get here, or they'll, they'll point out deficiencies and then work through and then iteratively solve them. And then if there's enough of these things happening in a particular way, I'm like, oh, we can develop a singular tool that addresses these three or four different things, these three or four different notes in order to get a particular look. So that usually comes organically from particular projects. Every once in a while, someone's I just got an idea. And we just take some footage that we may have and we try to do it. They're like, yeah, wouldn't it be cool to come up with something that looks something that looks like an old dye print, right? It's okay. Yeah. Let's make an old dye print look. Or someone will be like, you know what? I got my clients coming in and they want the looks on the iPhone. They're like, I shot with this filter in the iPhone. And they're like, I want it. Can we just have those? So that when people ask for it, we can show them, even if that's not where they want to go, sometimes that facilitates the conversation. So it's like, all right, let's take an Alexa and an iPhone and let's do some charts and let's see how they line up. Characterize the iPhone for Alexa material? Well, it's actually the opposite. It's making the Alexa behave like an iPhone. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's, oh yeah, I used the the vivid filter or the black and white filter or the noir (laughs) filter. And it's like, all right, here we go. We got that because that's, that's what people are using and that's how they're communicating now. So even though we do a lot of film, a lot of the communication is taking place digitally and a lot of people create their looks. They don't have cinema cameras on their shoulder all the time. Right. So they'll, they'll pull out their iPhone or they'll pull out their mirrorless SLR or DSLR or film camera and they'll shoot. And then it's okay. How do we combine these looks? How do we, I've gotten some particular looks where like I shoot with film and then someone will be like, oh, I shoot portrait 160 or I shoot portrait 800 or those different specific stocks. And I'd be like, oh, okay, here's, this is probably what you're looking for in terms of skin tone or someone's, oh, I used the Visco filters. 
the ideas to be able to communicate with the artists in the way that they're expressing their ideas and then give the tools for to facilitate that. And do those often end up taking the form of 3d LUTs or is there a different? I really like to use 3d LUTs. And the reason I like to use 3d LUTs is that they don't change. Mm -hmm. So we've done a lot of things. We, we use DCTLs where we have to for anything that's a spatial type of transformation. But the thing with the 3d LUT is that it's definable, it's locked and it can be archived. It can be transmitted. There's lots of different ways to view it. I've had some sessions where we've received some DCTLs from filmmakers and colorists and they, you know, they're, you know, even really smart people. And then for whatever reason, a particular filter on our particular box with that particular footage running in that particular way crashes. And then a color session becomes a debugging session. So that's something we wanted to get. And these are the things I'm working with. We're not just taking, oh, from some random person. I mean, like people who are professionals in the industry have handed us this. So with all of those particular instances together, oh, it took, we had to use this particular filter running on 6.4K uncompressed EXRs doing, and there's that, that broke things. Right. But when we did all the testing, it didn't. Or right. sometimes I remember we had when we tested everything and everything worked great. And then we worked with the DP and we got the full color and we're using a lot of these DCTLs. And then the director just came in and be like, you know what? I want to see this particular filter that I've used on my other films. Can you just run a denoise on it? And then it killed it because we never tested that particular filter on that resolution and that. So that's one of the reasons I like to use 3D LUTs because you're like, it works or it doesn't. Right. And it's it, another pass fail like you were talking about before. Yeah. And because of the incredible time cost of the people involved, right? The, it's not just that the room bills out for so much an hour. It's getting the director's time. Like a lot of times when we're finishing films and getting, if we're fortunate enough to have the DP involved and they can devote time to sitting in session, but typically the DP gets to help set some looks. And then they're actually, at that point, they're shooting something else. They're off to another show. Sure. The director's on the soundstage. They're doing press tours. They're also devoting their time between final color. So the idea is when you get those people in the room, you want things to work as smoothly and quickly as possible to maximize the amount of time that they have available to do this. That's so a fascinating it's, perspective. Yeah, yeah. So it's really important that we don't, that we try to set up, we try to avoid problems. If there's something that we can avoid, then we do. If for some reason there's a particular kind of transform that can't be described as a 3D LUT, then we don't. Obviously, we do the thing we need to get the image quality, but there's a lot of things that you can do to basically pre-rake and pre-define these kind of transformations. So that's not even a question. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, the 3D LUT, it's, it's such a humble but such a versatile instrument. It's just simply a way of combining, like, it's all of the same math, just combined in a way where it's you just pre-define the solutions. And at this point, the computers can handle easily 128-sided 3D LUT without any kind of performance hit. So that's pretty granular in terms of if you're talking about a 10-bit imaging system. That's way inside that threshold. It, it's not fully defined, right? It's not 1023 by 1023 LUT, but you've defined an awful lot where the interpolation that you're doing between, and especially with the tetrahedral interpolation we're doing, really good results. Yeah. This is a total tangent, but the other thing that I, I always find interesting about this conversation about LUTs and the like estimation between node points on a LUT is what are you trying to describe? Are you trying to describe something that does that? Or are you trying to describe something that generally has smooth curvature? And if you have enough nodes to describe smooth curvature, then what further granularity do you want or need at that point? So because of the way that we work with things, 
I always make something that behaves smooth. So there's different color spaces for different purposes. Mm -hmm. And you have different, if you're accurately uh, modeling some sort of physical process versus the end color. So you have to understand why people are using that and what controls they're going to have to affect it. So I always try to make DI color spaces that are smooth and effective. So for instance, even if there's a camera system where let's say you have red and the brighter you make the red, all of a sudden it turns orange. You're like, that's probably not what people want. They're like, I want as bright a red as I can get. And if they want to make it orange, they make it orange themselves. So for instance, we'll, you know, we'll cap that so that the behavior is always consistent for the final color. And if they want to shift the hue, I make it so that they can shift the hue on their own. But there's no reason, for instance, to have cyans go green or greens go cyan or that particular thing, unless it's on purpose. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Okay, next thing I want to ask you about. So we touched on something really organically that like at Photochem, you guys have, of course, not only really great artists and uh, scientists and like creative facilitators working in the building, but you have many of the biggest filmmakers and busiest filmmakers, time poor people in the world moving in and out of that facility. And like you said, you want to make the most of their time and give them the best experience and uh, all of that. And I'm specifically uh, curious uh, about filmmakers like Christopher Nolan, who you work with, where you have to figure out a very complex task of taking, or we mentioned Hateful Eight is the other one that comes to mind, where you've got, okay, this is a photochemical process that is largely being done in a traditional photochemical way. Being photochem, you handle a lot of that portion of things. Do you guys have a color timer in-house? Yes. Okay, gotcha. I didn't even know. We have two. I I think we used to have more. That's enough to service the, the volume at the moment, I imagine. I'm actually, yeah, it's funny because there's less and less labs. We get more and more of the work. So Mm. we're actually busier than we had been when film was bigger. Interesting. So it's like it was, there was tons of work and then there was less work and now there's becoming more work again. It was, it's not something we necessarily planned on. (laughs) (laughs) We're not like, oh yeah, in five years, you know what? We're going to be doing growth area, (laughs) 30% 30 more volume, right? (laughs) I'm getting such warm and fuzzies for like photochemical imaging and release printing and color timing and everything we're talking about from this conversation, because whatever amount of it is happening, it's a ton of it is happening with you guys in this very like focused and refined way. Like you said, it's probably in a more mature, robust form than it's ever been like those crafts and processes. So as digital has come online, people have become less and less tolerant of film. So essentially filmmakers don't, what used to be an acceptable level of tolerance for a filmmaker from print to print or variation is not accepted by most filmmakers. They, they simply just go, it's green today. And they're like, oh yeah, it's within our printing tolerance. Like, I don't know like, what that is or care. They're like, I know it's near tolerance, but it's green today. And you're like, yeah. It's not in my tolerance. <laughs> yeah. So the idea is, but whereas even people who had worked with film have gotten to the thing where it's no color should be a hundred percent dead, repeatable, the same over. And with film, that didn't just happen. So our tolerances have tightened and our lab quality has improved as time has gone on. So there's Photochem still devoting resources to making film better, right? So the shift process, um, the ability to uh, do this black and white processing for Oppenheimer, there's still active investment in improving our scanning and recording, keeping our lab up to date, keeping, figuring out the best practice. So even though film's very mature, we haven't stopped doing what we can to make the result and process better for filmmakers. Wow. That's so cool. Well, that, that 
directly bears on where I was going a moment ago, which is thinking about, so you're supporting all the photochemical aspects of like films like Oppenheimer or Christopher Nolan's other films or Hateful Eight, but you're also responsible for the digital aspect of those things and for marrying those two like release paths, right? Yeah. And you touch both of those things. It's not, oh no, Joseph just does does the photochemical stuff or Joseph just does the digital side. Like you're swimming in both lanes. I bridge the gap in between. The beginning of the process is, so we had a very uh, senior person who helped begin a lot of these projects, William Schultz. And he bridged those technical areas very well. And I depend on the expertise of the lab people at this point. They've been doing these things. Some of these people have been working in the lab longer than I've been alive. So they really know what they're doing. They're expert at it. And they continuously try and care. They're not just, okay, we're almost done phoning in. They're like, there's really a large amount of pride. And then I try to take on and handle the digital side as much as possible. So essentially, the lab, we work together, but the lab folks handle the film and they're really in charge of that. And that's why it's the quality it's at. But then working the digital side of things, it gets to be challenging. So I really like working on... So at this point, we've done a couple films for for Christopher Nolan. I don't speak for him or his process. But what I've noticed is we're given, in my turn, we're given, I'm given a very exact product. So there's a timed film print that's created. And so long as my digital looks like the time film print, I've succeeded. If it's whatever decisions that were made that made it onto the film, if I can make sure that those adequately are represented in the way that's true to the film print, I've accomplished the task as it needs to be. Which is nice because there's something you can look at. You can put it up and say, this is what this is supposed to look like. A lot of times when you're working with digital, you're like, you don't know what it's supposed to look like. There's no particular target. You don't know if you've hit it, you've passed it, whatever. So it's simply just make the digital look exactly like film. And if I could do that perfectly, then I would have an entirely happy, I would, it it would be great. So the idea is that I work with the colorist Costas and we spend specifically for these projects, we spend a couple months working with it. So there's some very specific tool chains where the digital controls have to very closely mimic the analog controls in order to produce the color. So we simply can't go, oh, the skin tone's too saturated and just hit the saturation knob. There's an expectation that if that happens, we go back to the model, we fix the model, we make a new digital version, and then compare that against a print to make sure that they're matching up. Wow. So there's a lot more work that goes into that, but the work is very directed because we have very specific targets. So as we're working on the film, the, the analog components get finalized. And sometimes we'll take pre-production or in-process production work because it's still on the film and it has particular color timing and things, but it may not be the final pieces so that we can ask permission, run those through your projector, and then make sure and test on this particular sequence is the digital lot holding up and behaving the same way as the film. Wow. So you're really tightly modeling the process like via LUT and pipeline of the print and then you're also recreating or matching in terms of the tools that are being used. Are you mirroring the color timer? Yes. With what you do on the digital. So the idea is that we have the, we'll have the negative will be timed and a color print will be created from that Mm -hmm. as well. A timed IP is created. Mm -hmm. That timed IP is then becomes the source for the digital. So the photochemical timing is absorbed into that. I see. So that most of it is in, 
but they're two different generation elements. So it's a print made from the negative versus an IP that's then scanned and then emulated. Mm -hmm. So the process that we do for that film, it's not our standard process because typically we would do a negative to print emulation. So this is an intermediate, this is a negative to print versus an intermediate to print and they need to match. So that's one of the challenges is that it's not, I don't get to use the tools I normally use because of this very specific process that we're working. And the idea is that I just need to make it work. Right. So even if, because there's still digital color timing and, and things that need to come into play, but the idea is that the controls work in a way that if it was printed up a point, it feels exactly the same as if you were to take that photochemical element and print it up a point that they work the same way. They roll off the same way. They, they roll into shadows. They roll into highlights. Everything just has to work. Whereas a normal film, I could get 80% there and the colors goes, I got it. I got this. Yeah. yeah and they just go, you know what? I'm going to um, leave the highlights a little hot and I'll put in my own roll off so that I can change the way the highlights work. So on this, it's just simply just make it do this for this wow. particular. And at the time we have is because we can, it's this particular emulsion batch. It's this particular set of stock because all of the stock is bought for the film and pre-bought at the same time. So I understand that all of that works the same way all the print stock is going to be of for the, for these particular ones and the IP stock is all going to be from particular batches. So it's really, and then it's not just, Oh, what projector it's going to be, what projector are we going to be exhibiting on? Make sure it's all in physical and mechanical condition, exactly the way it's supposed to be. Make sure the bulb is behaving the way it's supposed to be. This piece of film on this projector looks like this on this screen. And here's the digital projector that we're going to use and make sure that they line up as as close as we can get them and we'll take a couple months to do that for these projects but then when they walk in the thing that i try to do is make sure that what my work never becomes an obstacle and the idea is that it's taken a couple films but i feel i've gotten things into a better place where there's less concentration on the technology and there's more concentration on the imagery and if there's a difference it feels organic and it feels like a difference not like a deficiency yeah I don't know if that's specifically how the work's interpreted, but I'm really hoping that these technological things aren't getting in the way or impairing or slowing down the creative process because it's, I can almost only get it wrong. (laughs) It's all wrong answers and only one right one. Yeah. Like it's it's the way it's supposed to be or it's wrong. No one ever goes, wow, I'm so surprised. That looks so much better than I was envisioning when I shot it. That doesn't, that doesn't happen from a technical thing. So the idea is it's the way it's supposed to be or it's not. Or it's the other, any other way. There's no bonus. It's, ah, color's 10% better. I thought at the beginning of this conversation, wouldn't it be cool to have Joseph's job? Now I'm not so sure. Your job's hard. It's cool, but it's hard. I've worked with a lot of very understanding people and that helps out. Yeah. Color is just one part. It's never, unless it's broken, it's never the most important part of a film, right? It's right. part of all of these other things. So I try to do the best I can to make it get out of the way. When people want something specific and they can't get it, I try to make sure it gets there. And it's about having films are just amazing. Just working in any other industry and you come to a film and it's just like in two years, this whole business entity spins up all these creative people, hundreds of not thousands of people work in any individual piece. And because it's such a visual medium, like my position helps everyone work together. It preserves all of the work that goes into set design, all of the work that goes into lighting, right? If I don't do my job well, that doesn't get preserved. That's beautiful, man. But And then when something doesn't go right, people, like I, I haven't 
No one's coming at me screaming, even when stuff hasn't been right. They're usually like, all right, what are you going to do about it? How are we going to fix this? This isn't what we want. We're not getting it in time. And it's, it's all about sitting down and being like, okay, here's what we've done. Here's why it didn't work. Here's what we're going to do to fix it. Here's how we're, here's how long it's going to take us and step-by-step step laying out the solutions. Yeah. Cause yeah, I, when I walk in the rooms, usually something's wrong. No one's, oh, this is great. We'll just invite our color scientist in for no reason. It's, hey, you're not getting what you want, powerful, yeah. famous person. We're going to send Joseph in to yeah. tell you why you can't have why it. Why you can't have it today. <laughs> and then when everything's right, the executives walk in the room and they're like, let's go. Like, here, do you want to go to a Dodgers game? Or let's go do these really great things. And then it's, oh, Joseph's in the room. But people still seem to like dealing with me. So far, it's been good. But yeah, I find, for the most part, I've just been working with reasonable people who understand things go wrong. And we address it and move on. And so far, everything's happened the way it's needed to. You're doing something that, you know, like the combination of, like, technical resources and brain power that is needed to accomplish some of the things we're talking about. How many places in the world could you go to get this done? It's just a, it's such a specialized thing that you're doing in collaboration with your employer and with these filmmakers and with the colorist you work with. It's a, a very specific thing that you're doing and it's, you've clearly figured a thing or two out about it along the way. Yeah. I've gotten to, essentially I've gotten to work on really great problems. People want something done that can't happen, and then I get to work with them to make it happen. And then the more of that I do, the more, you know, it's like when you ask me a question and I come up with an answer within a minute or two, it's because I took me a week ahead of time on someone else's project to understand that. So I've gotten enough of this work under my belt where I know I've already gotten it wrong for someone else once, so I can get it right for you yeah. at, at those points. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so cool. I think the... I've got a gazillion other questions for you, but at some point I have to let you go color science again. But one thing I did want to ask you about is like, where do you see the other thing that's interesting about your role is you're really at this intersection of you are revitalizing and continuing to evolve like the language of film, which so many people have discounted or cast aside, but you're also involved in very bleeding edge, like forward facing technologies. Sometimes those are the same thing. Sometimes like shift AI, it's an emerging tech with film. But like, where do you see all this stuff going? Where do you see like the state of our craft of motion, creative motion imaging and or motion image mastering, I should say, where is that going to go in five, 10 years? What are we going to be doing differently than we're doing today? Any it, predictions? It depends what I'm doing and what other people are doing. So we tend to work with people who are either very devoted in film school or who have at the top of their craft. And what's really going to happen is this new generation of filmmakers that have started as vloggers and YouTubers are, there's going to be some of them that are moving into the main motion picture industry and they're going to bring a different aesthetic and they're going to bring a different set of sensibilities into the industry. In terms of the technology, we have HDR and it's established and it's there and it can be used. Maybe it's going to get brighter. Maybe we'll get a little more color gamut, but the idea is where it's really going to come down to is that when the filmmakers are of this more TikTok, YouTube, all of these new generations of video content generation start moving into the narrative and longer form content. That's where I think we're going to see a big shift again. That's a great point. And you're going to have to support those aesthetics and ideals and figure out how to give people what they're looking for. Yeah. It's, it's going to be new, yeah. right? It's not going to be the same thing that we've seen before. It's, there's going to be new things and some of them are just going to hit. Like one, one person's going to get the idea and whatever it is, they're going to take what they had from there 
and they're going to combine it with a different different format, a different genre, and we're really going to expand the art again. So you know? you're going to be like those the all the lab folks that you mentioned. There's no phoning it in for you. You're going to be very active and creatively engaged in your job for as long as you're doing it, aren't you? Yeah, that's the good part, right? Who wants to just sit down and look at spreadsheets of numbers all day? Like they all mean something, and the stuff, the work that I do means something to someone, right? Sometimes they express it in that it's it's not right. And sometimes they express it and they've gotten something they haven't been able to get before that. We really just managed to hit that, that one nuance that went from their idea of being conceptually good to being on screen. Good. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's nice to work with people who care. It just is. And like I said, the biggest filmmakers and the smallest filmmakers are the ones who care the most. That's a great insight. And I'll say, it's really nice to chat with people who care and you're high on that list. Like your passion is so obvious and it's infectious. And I'm like excited to go think about color science and uh, go into my day of color grading after we wrap here today. So yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks so much for making the time, man. This was yeah, awesome. I, I appreciate having the chance to talk. Yeah, absolutely. We'll have to do it again uh, sometime sure. in the future, but yeah, thank you again. So much cool stuff to digest. Really appreciate it. All right. All right, man. We'll see you for the next one.